Well, Pastor Lee said a mouthful last Wednesday night. He told us that God the Father has blessed us, chosen us, adopted us, accepted us. Jesus the Son has redeemed us, forgiven us, enlightened us, enriched us, and that the Holy Spirit of God has sealed us and guaranteed our future. That was a lot going on uh, last week here. And if you haven't listened to last week's message yet, make sure you do, because Paul is continuing in verse 15 with a therefore. And I was always told when we come to a therefore, find out what it's there for. What it is this time is, because of all these blessings from the triune God, all the blessings found in verses 1 through 14, Paul is praying for us that we may avail ourselves of their benefits in our daily lives. But first, Paul begins with a compliment. Verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints. Paul is complimenting these Christian men and women He has heard of their exceptional faith in the Lord. He's heard of their exceptional love for all the saints. And so Paul says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Well, there's two different major prayers in the book of Ephesians. The first one is right here, verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1. And it says, that you might know. The second one, prayer, is in chapter 3, verses 13 through 21, that you might be. The first is for enlightenment. The second is for enablement. Paul prays first that we might know what Christ has done for us. Then he prays that we might live up to these wonderful blessings and put them to work in our daily lives. Tonight we'll carefully study this first prayer that Paul offers to the Lord, the prayer for knowledge and understanding. The first part of, of of knowledge that Paul prays for is found in verses 17 and 18, that God may give you spiritual understanding. Verse 17, that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul is speaking here of an an enlightened human spirit. One way that we're created in the image of the triune God is that mankind is also a triune creature. We have a body, a soul, and a spirit. With our body, we can know the physical world around us. With our soul, I call that our personality. We can know ourselves and others. With our spirit, we can know and worship God, who is a spirit. Our spirit is what Paul is speaking of in chapter 2, verse 1. We'll get to it later, but let's look at it here. He says, And you he made alive, who were dead, in trespasses and sins. Paul is speaking here of our spirit being made alive. 
You see, death is separation. Physical death occurs when our soul, when our soul and spirit leave the body. Spiritual death is our spirit being separated from God. When we're born physically into this world, we're all born under the curse of Adam, born spiritually dead and separated from a loving God. Our body and soul, that's alive, but our spirit is dead, and as Paul said, dead in trespasses and sins. In their innocence, Adam and Eve were pure and sinless. Well, that all changed with the forbidden fruit. Sin and depravity entered the human heart. Cain and Abel and all children born into this fallen human race are born broken, spiritually dead, and cut off from our Creator. In comparison to the totally, absolutely righteous and holy God, the good things that we can do with the dead spirit is never to the same degree as pure and righteous as it should be. Paul puts it another way. He says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, this is the New Living Translation, for everyone has sinned, and here's how he puts it, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. As John Corson states it, all of our charitable giving, do-gooding, and volunteering are filthy rags because God sees not only what we do, but the mixed motives behind our actions. Jesus sees right through the things that look so noble to others. And as Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, he said, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Being born again is being made alive spiritually, alive to God's Spirit, alive to the presence and the person of a holy God, not just mentally or intellectually knowing about God. Paul's prayer, his, his prayer for us goes way beyond that, way beyond just another theology discussion or seminary class. Verse 17 is all about the Lord giving us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. There's an old hymn written by Mary Lathbury in the 1800s, and it says, Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as thou didst break the loaves beside the sea. And here's the part I want us to focus on. Beyond the sacred page I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. God wants us to sense his presence to be awed by His glory, to warm ourselves by the fire of His love. Paul prays that God will reveal Himself to us personally and intimately. By God's Holy Spirit, our spirit, our hearts are enlightened, given wisdom to understand and the insight to apply God's Word to our daily lives. That's what the first part of verse 18 is talking about. Let's look at that. That the eyes of your understanding, of your hearts, be enlightened. You see, spiritual truth must be spiritually discerned. And this understanding can only come from the Spirit. He's the one who wrote the Word, and He alone can teach us what it says. 
As the Holy Spirit enlightens our understanding of God's Word, we gain insights to apply to our daily life situations, such as how to respond to an angry neighbor, or when to give our children expanding freedoms, where to invest our time and energy for God's glory, ways to apply God's truth and understanding and wisdom, with understanding and wisdom. In the next part of verse 18, Paul prays, secondly, that we may know or be made aware of truth that gives each of us hope. He prays, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Well, Peter also talks about this. He calls it a living hope. He connects it to the truth of the resurrection. It's the hope all believers have in our eternal future. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And before I read the fifth verse, I want to say this. Peter tells us that heaven and all that it contains is our incorruptible, undefiled inheritance that is reserved for us, not based on my goodness or righteousness or faithfulness, but reserved by God for me. So he ends, in, uh, Peter ends with verse 5. He says, We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only my hope of heaven is reserved, but I, that's me, I'm also being kept by the power of God. Because God chose us in Christ, we have a blessed hope for all eternity, and that depends not on our goodness, but on God's grace. This hope of His calling tells me that I am somebody I'm a child of God, an heir of the King. Heaven is mine. In the last part of verse 18, Paul wants us to know what we mean or what our value is to the Savior, how precious we are to Him. Paul prays that you may know, the last part of 18, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. When the word riches appears, as it often does in Ephesians, it suggests that there is nothing lacking. Nothing more is needed. That's the riches of God. This verse is very interesting. It says that we not only have an inheritance in Christ, but we are an inheritance to Christ. Like it says, of His inheritance in the saints. We've mentioned before that God gives us an inheritance, but He too has an inheritance. And guess what He longs for? Well, hold on to your hat. It's you and me. You and I are what God treasures. He treasures to spend eternity, He treasures the time to spend eternity with us. We are truly cherished by God Himself. As Christians mature in the Lord, as we learn how much we mean to Jesus, 
that's when we begin living even more to bring joy to His heart. Paul concludes this prayer on our behalf in verses 19 through 23. He tells us the third thing, that we might know God's power. Verse 19, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. Well, how great and mighty is this power, the power that raised Christ from the dead? I can't help believe that here Paul pointedly refers to Jesus as Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. God in the flesh, the Christ raised from the dead. In this one momentary action at the tomb, God overcame. He overpowered the total forces of Satan and his hordes. Overcame and overpowered the entire destructive effects of sin and wickedness down through the ages. Since the moment Eve was deceived at the tree since she craved the knowledge that it offered. The power of Christ's resurrection has undone all all of that destruction for anyone and everyone who by faith simply believes. As Paul said it in verse 19, this is the exceeding greatness of His power Toward us who believe. That's why Paul tells the Philippian church. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to or literally it says arrive at the resurrection from the dead. Paul prays here that we might know God's power. The power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at God's right hand in the heavenly places. That same power is available to each of us every day. Just acknowledge your weakness and hold up your tin cup under God's spigot until He fills it to overflowing. Well, Paul goes on to tell us just how high Jesus is exalted. Verse 21. He's exalted far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Not only is Jesus lifted far above all creation, He's seated at the, right, at the Father's right hand of preeminence. But also, all things are placed subservient to Him. Look at verse 22. And He, that's God the Father, put all things under His feet. It's one thing to be greater than all, but yet it's still another to be eternally recognized and acknowledged as such. And the last part of verse 22 God gave him to be head over all things to the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is reminding us that the head of the church isn't the pastor, not the elders, not even the members. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're at the end of chapter 1, and I like how Warren Wiersbe, he's one of my favorite Bible teachers, he sums up this chapter. He says, The very power that raised Jesus from the dead is available for our daily lives. Christ has already won the victory over sin, death, the world, and Satan. God's people do not fight for victory, but we fight from victory. We are seated with Him in the heavenlies where there are power, peace, and victory. Well, we're going to start chapter 2. And I'm quoting another favorite Bible teacher of mine. I like how Pastor Sandy Adams introduces chapter 2 of Ephesians. He says, Ephesians 2 is a rags-to-riches story, and the main character is you. It describes how you grew up on the wrong side of the spiritual tracks, but in Christ you've overcome impossible odds to gain a glorious future. This chapter is all about grace through faith. Verse 1, And He made you, and you He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul lays it out there, and he doesn't give us any mixed messages. We weren't sick or maladjusted or immature. Before putting faith in Jesus, mankind was dead, spiritually dead to the presence, knowledge, and wisdom of God. We were stuck in the grip of a fallen race. Paul describes this fallen predicament we found ourselves in in verse 2. He says, "...in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience." Well, this world is not operating on a level ground. It's influenced and manipulated by an unseen power, Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Mankind is dead to God. We're sinners by nature. And Paul sums up the result of this in one word. He says, disobedience. The children of disobedience. Well, what are they disobedient to? Well, I look back to Adam and Eve, and I think as they were created innocent, they became disobedient to love others with agape love. God created Adam and Eve to give unconditional love, actions, and attitudes toward others. Paul describes this in verse 3. He says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others we were predisposed to self-indulgence. Verse 4, But God, but God who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which 
He loved us. Don't you love those two words? But God. Two of the most comforting words in Scripture. You see, God saw our horrible dilemma. In verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is such a radical change from the first three verses. They're as black and hopeless as anything can be. Man is a complete failure. He's incapable of saving himself. But God comes on the scene, the scene of death, with his mercy. God's solution to our dilemma was life, spiritual life. God came to earth rich in mercy. Remember this. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So God is rich in this mercy. He replaces death with life, spiritual, eternal life with Jesus. So here's what I think. Mercy is God overcoming death for us. That's what we deserve. Grace is God imparting life to us by His riches. Being born again or being made alive in Christ is like taking the extension cord of your life and plugging it in to the socket of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual power flows through that cord and lights the lamp of your spirit. You're alive. Now in verses 2 through 7, Paul is giving us a real, what I call a twist in the time continuum. Verses 2 and 3 are past tense. We were dead in sin. Verses 5 and 6 are present tense. We have been made alive with Christ. Verse 7 will be future tense. We are the future demonstration of God's love and grace. But verse 6 is really interesting. Verse 6 is the present and the future. It is so sure, so indisputable, that the future God has for us is expressed in the present tense. Some Bible scholars teach that verse 6 refers to the position we have before God because of our faith in Christ. In the practical sense, it's true. We are struggling with the flesh every day, seeking to walk in the Spirit and become more and more like Jesus. That's our desire. Our position before God is permanent. It happened at our new birth. It says in verse 6, God has raised us up together, past, uh, present tense, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Dr. Alvord, I love this old guy. He's not alive anymore. He's with the Lord. But uh, he says this, Believers are positioned spiritually in heaven where Christ is. They are no longer mere earthlings. Their citizenship is in heaven. We find that in the book of Philippians. He is the exalted Son of God, and they are exalted sons and daughters of God. Well, I'll make it personal. And we are exalted sons of God and daughters of God. We are right now 
not only living on this earth as God's children, but verse 6 tells us that we are also right now sitting together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our future in Christ is that sure, that secure. And then Paul says in verse 7, that in the ages to come, God might show or demonstrate the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Some have called this God's publicity program for all ages. All this was done by God in Christ with a single end in view. It was to demonstrate in successive ages the surpassing wealth and riches of God's grace. Let's look at verse 8. 8, 9, and 10, great, famous verses. We should all have them memorized. But for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now lest faith should be in any way misinterpreted as man's contribution to his own salvation, Paul immediately adds a rider to this contract, the phrase, and that, and that not of yourselves. This phrase is added to explain that nothing is of our own doing, but everything is the gift of God. The phrase, and that, connects with the entire clause, both grace and faith are gifts from God. Verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Any kind of human self-effort is comprehensively ruled out by this short expression from Paul. And then verse 10, for we, for we are His workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This verse gives us both sides of the coin the cause and the effect of good works in every believer's life. The cause is that we are His workmanship. We are His creation, the work of God's hands. We are the clay, and He is the potter. God has created our DNA. He put the pieces of every one of us together to make each of us unique, uniquely His. The Lord is also molding us like clay. He is molding and shaping each of us throughout our lives to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus. Or another way to look at it is, our lives are the canvas on which God is painting, on which He expresses His thoughts, His will, and His heart. There are different biblical pictures of this paradigm. Uh, let me just mention two or three. He is the vine, and we are the branches. We stay connected to Him. Paul said, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And, and then he says, The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son 
of God. And that's why the New Testament tells us we walk by faith, not by sight. God's Word tells us we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. And then here's my favorite. We are to walk in the Spirit and we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Each of these images portray the workmanship of God in our lives with a combination of His creating us and His Spirit working in us and through us. At verse 11, we come to another therefore. As we rejoice in God's mercy and grace, Paul wants us to remember what a great price was paid for our salvation. What it cost to bridge the chasm between a holy God and sinful man. Verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being alienated, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is saying, you were Gentiles, uncircumcised, aliens from Israel, strangers from the covenants containing God's promises, with no hope of eternal life. You were without God, left to invent false gods to fill that spirit-shaped vacuum in your hearts. It's not that God was unwilling to be gracious to the whole world, but outside of Israel, the Gentiles had limited access to God. In that sense, back then, you could say race was a barrier to grace. God had spent nearly 2,000 years of human history in the Old Testament preparing for salvation's event, preparing for the cross. But now, God is coloring outside the lines to reveal Himself to the Gentiles, to the whole world. Verse 13, But now, Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The spilt blood of Christ flows beyond the borders of the promised land. It reaches far and wide, beckoning the Gentiles to the cross. No matter how far off or how separated from the holy righteous God mankind has wandered, the blood of Christ spans all that distance. When a Jew and a Gentile receive the free gift of Jesus, the distance between them is erased. Verse 14, For He Himself is our peace, who has made both, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of partition. Pastor Sandy Adams makes this distinction. He says, notice Jesus doesn't give peace. It says in verse 14, He Himself is our peace. It's His presence. It's knowing He's near, holding His hand, 
That's what brings about a sense of peace and rest and security. Sandy says, don't pray for God's peace. Pray that God will reveal in your life the presence of Jesus. Well, Paul is telling, telling us that Jesus has made peace between God and mankind, but also stated here, between the Jew and the Gentile. In fact, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. As it said, He has made both one. Jesus, through His broken body, has destroyed all the barriers separating mankind. In verse 15, Paul tells us how He does it. Having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. When God reached down, chose Abraham, and gave him a nation, then he reached down and chose Moses to give him the Ten Commandments, the law. He was creating a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile that existed up until the cross. The cross fulfilled the law, bringing salvation to all men everywhere. Jews and Gentiles were enemies because the Jews sought to keep the law with its commandments and regulations, whereas Gentiles were totally unconcerned about them. The difference was like a barrier between them. But now that the law is fulfilled, Jewish-Gentile hostility is gone. The law belonged to the Jews, but Jesus belongs to both Jew and Gentile. He belongs to us all. McGee tells us, the peace referred to is between the Jew and the Gentile. When the Jew and Gentile come to the cross as sinners, they are made into a new creation. They become a new man, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, in verse 15, Paul told us how peace was made. In verse 16, he tells us why. And that he, that's God, might reconcile them both to God, to himself, in one body through the cross, thereby putting death the en- to death the enmity. This reconciliation or peace with, with God is not based on nationality or works or the law. It's based entirely on the cross. As the cross at the cross, mankind stands as one one created race, the human race, equally in need of reconciliation to the Creator. This new man in verse 15 is also called one body in verse 16, the church. In the church, Gentiles do not become Jews, nor do Jews become Gentiles. Instead, believing Jews and Gentiles become Christians, a whole new single entity, the church. Though Jesus was put to death, he in turn 
put to death the Jewish-Gentile enmity. In verse 14, the reconciliation is between Jewish and Gentile believers. In verse 16, the reconciliation is between people and God. Verse 17, And He came and He preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Verse 17 begins with and. And I think this links verse 17 with verse 14. Not only is Christ our peace, but He also preached peace. Well, when did Jesus do this? Well, I think this must refer to the preaching of peace by the apostles rather than Christ himself because Jesus preached almost entirely to the Jews. There was a Canaanite woman who asked Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. We find this in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. But Jesus answered her and he said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came anyway, and she worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. And we skip down to verse 28. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So verse 17 tells us that peace is supplied both to those who were afar off, that is, the Gentiles who were without Christ and alienated from Israel and her covenants. It was also preached to those who were near. That would be the Jews who have the covenants of promise. Verse 18, For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. You see, our access to the Father is through the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. When I received Christ into my heart, it was by the Holy Spirit that He entered into my life. And it's the same Spirit that dwells in each of us. There's not a Holy Spirit for country folk and a Holy Spirit for city slickers. It's the same Spirit for all believers. Now in this last section of chapter 2, Paul sees the church as a building, a temple actually, with a firm foundation and a cornerstone and walls that are fitted together to house the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautifully crafted building made up of kindred souls brought together from a diverse array of the, un, of the unusual suspects. Jesus is building his house the church. Paul says in verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We can go anywhere on this earth into totally diverse cultures and not be strangers or foreigners when we come to the local body of Christ. There's an instant fellowship in the Savior. Verse 20, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief 
cornerstone. As believers, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Each of us is carrying the spiritual DNA of the apostles and the prophets who established foundational doctrine and practices for us. With Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone that joins us and holds us all together, creating unity within the diversity of our personal backgrounds. He's also that load, that one load-bearing rock on which everything in the church rests. Jesus, the cornerstone, is the one in whom the whole building, verse 21, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And today Jesus continues to build His church, His body. Each of us, you and me, are living stones in this house of God. Each of us is a different shaped stone with individual distinctiveness that are, that are carefully fitted together by the master craftsman. The master craftsman is the Lord Himself. And in verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Well, this may be a house, but it sounds kind of like a tree house, a living, growing, adapting, improving structure built by God to provide comfort and protection and friendship and fellowship to each and all who belong to the Lord. The church is the place on earth where God's Spirit hangs out. And that should be the reputation of Open Gate here in our community. We, that we are a place where anyone can come to find the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the, the men and women in those early times who went through such persecution simply because they loved You, simply because they shared You with others. But God, we thank You for what they have provided for us, that we have Your Word to study, that we know the truth of who You are, and that, Lord, by that truth, by inviting Your Spirit into our lives, by believing, we can enjoy fellowship with You and with each other. God, thank You for making those of us who were dead alive in Christ. In His precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming tonight online.